Thomas was born July 2nd, 1489. He studied theology at Cambridge in 1503, where he would remain on staff there in a teaching fellowship at Jesus' college. He would have remained in the academy had it not been for the political events that surrounded him in his life. In 1533, he was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest position in the church in England. It would not come until later in life, though, that he would be convinced of Protestant doctrines of justification by faith alone. Eventually, Thomas would die for his role in reforming the Church of England. Before his death in 1556, Thomas was forced to give a complete um, denial of all that he had taught and believed. But at his death, on March the 21st, 1556, when he was burned in effigy, he would stand again on his convictions that Jesus Christ had died as a substitute for sinners, that there was no longer a need for a continual mass, but that there was a once-for-all sacrifice. His faithfulness to Christ was made visible when at His death, He stuck His right hand out first and touched the flame because it was His right hand many months earlier that had signed those recantations, those denials concerning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he had offended his Lord and defied the King, of e- the King of England, what would lead a man like that to die a horrific death, being burned alive because of a set of beliefs? Sure, one could conclude maybe he was just a radical. But if you read his writings, he was quite sane in his thinking. He was quite thoughtful in his approach and his devotion to the Lord. In fact, this morning, our order of service, the one that guides us each week as we worship God, well, was written by Thomas Cramner 500 years ago. You see, for 500 years, Cramner has been faithfully leading Protestant churches, Baptist and Presbyterian and English, whatever denomination, in faithful worship because he was devoted to a greater king than the king of England. He could stare down all of the evil around him because he believed that there was another one greater than the one who sat on the throne the great and mighty British Empire. And His name was Jesus. Because of His faith in Him, He was able to stare down such evil. Now last week we considered this question in chapter 19 of Luke's Gospel. Who will be king of your life? For Cramner, many years earlier, he had come to the recognition that there was a greater authority than even him as the archbishop. That greatest seat in the Church of England, he was willing to put down his crown, if you will, so that he could sit and worship the feet of a greater king. And the question remains as we go into Luke chapter 20, in these final days in Jesus' life and ministry, 
Who will be king? Will Jesus be king? Or will the people remain? Last week we saw the somber close to what was a day of celebration. What we know as Palm Sunday, where we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus. The King has finally come. But, those in the temple don't recognize Him as King. They don't worship Him as King. The religious leaders, the ones who we would expect to be right there alongside of the disciples, singing praise and adoration to their long-awaited Davidic King. No, there's no such praise. The King had arrived in His temple and what he found was, was not devotion, but debauchery. The religious leaders had turned the sacrificial system into a profit-sharing scheme where the rich got richer and those devoted to God were made poor. And this morning, Luke chapter 20 opens on the next day. It's Tuesday now in the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. The question remains, who is king? Friend, I invite you to turn this morning to Luke chapter 20. It's found on page 879 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. Let me encourage you to grab a copy of God's Word, turn it to page 879. If you're not accustomed to looking at God's Word, the large numbers Those are the chapter numbers, and those small numbers that look like footnotes, those are the verse numbers. And I should encourage you to find that giant number 20, the big 20 on page 879. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you are welcome to take that pew Bible home with you as our gift to you. We commend you reading it and getting to know God better through it. Luke chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? When they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let out its tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also. They wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
And then, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay their hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. My friend, this morning we're going to consider these 19 verses. Luke, who is writing to a friend of his named Theophilus, to give him an orderly account of all the things that he has come to know and believe. Luke writes and records this particular story so that Christians would be assured of the authority of King Jesus, though it was rejected. And so the point of this sermon, only those who humbly hear and believe that Jesus is King will inherit the kingdom of God. Only those who humbly hear and believe that Jesus is the King will inherit the kingdom of God. And so the purpose of our time is to show us the, that hardness of heart, hard-heartedness, prevents us from hearing the truth and therefore trusting in Christ. You see, in this text this morning, we see two tragic consequences for those who harden their hearts toward Jesus as King. If you take notes, there's just two main points. Verses 1 through 8 teach us that hard hearts cannot hear the truth about Jesus. Hard hearts cannot hear the truth about Jesus. And this is illustrated in these religious leaders. Religion and knowledge of religion will not save. It is only submission to the Lordship of Christ. Number two, verses 9 through 19. The second tragic consequence towards those who harden their heart is that hard hearts cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We see a picture of something quite tragic. The very people of God, the ones who had the covenant promises, the, the, the children of Abraham, because of their hardness of heart towards Jesus, friend, we see the tragic consequence that they're cast out of the kingdom and others inherited in their place. So let's consider these two points this morning. Number one, hard hearts cannot hear the truth about Jesus. Luke records that on this next day or on another day, again, Luke isn't so focused on chronology as he is on giving us an orderly account of the things that came to be. Now, interestingly enough, this and the parable that follows it show up in each of the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It must have been important to these early disciples. And as we'll see in a moment, shows up in the apostles' teaching throughout the New Testament. 
Now we're told by Luke that Jesus was in the temple teaching and preaching. He was teaching the people. And we learned last week, I reminded you, that the temple was Jesus' favorite place to be. When he was a young boy growing in knowledge and stature and fear, we understand that that Jesus got separated from his family during one of their Passover visits, and they searched frantically for Jesus. And where did they find him? But as a young boy in the temple, teaching. And here he is in the final week of his ministry, teaching and preaching. And that word, evangelion, is that word that means to herald the good news about the coming kingdom. Jesus has kept his identity under wraps. He has tamped down any uh, zealous messianic fervor. But now as he stands in the temple, he heralds the good news that the king has come. And he has arrived. He is declaring who he is and what he has come to accomplish. And for you and I, we are surprised in this twist of the story that the religious leaders, the religious establishment, do not accept Jesus' teaching. Luke has led us to this conclusion, even going back to chapter 13, when he began to introduce this uh, group of individuals that were against the teaching of Christ. The very individuals who should have been worshiping and celebrating this good news, For them, it was bad news. It was horrible news. Why? Because someone had come to take their place. Someone had arrived to take, if you will, the crowns from their head and place it upon himself. And so the religious leaders come with a cohort. We're told the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders What do you have here? You have the the leaders of the sacrifices, the ones that were your means of atonement. These were important individuals. These were descendants of Aaron. And then we're told that the scribes come. These were the lawyers. These were the the experts on the law. These were the the ones that you would get frustrated with in Sunday school because they knew all the answers. And then the elders the respected leaders in the community. This cohort comes and gathers, we are told, and seeks to trick Jesus. Tell us what authority you do these things. Well, what things are they referring to? Well, he could be referring to this preaching and teaching. See, here's what you have to understand, is that Jesus was not a part of the religious establishment. He was not a rabbi. He was not a priest. He was not authorized to do what he's doing. But of course, he got himself into trouble the day earlier when he rolled into town. What did we find him doing but whipping people and throwing tables over in the temple? A maniac has come into the temple. And claimed ownership and authority. And these leaders have had enough of it. It is the end of the line for you, Jesus. And this was indicated in what you heard in verse 19. Or even as we considered last week, in that haunting vision of the end, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to kill him. Chapter 19, 
verse 39. They were conspiring together in order to kill Jesus. Their minds, their hearts were settled. And so when we see this question presented to Jesus, we we ought not to think that they are inquiring minds. These are not inquiring minds. No, no, friends, these are hard hearts towards King Jesus. There's not one ounce of humility in them, but it is tinged with pride. And Jesus, in His wonderful wisdom, turns their question back on themselves. And He asks them, He says, hey, you have questions for me, I have questions for you. By whose authority did John do his ministry? Now he's referring here in the text, we see the baptism of John. I'll ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? In other words, John the Baptist, we were introduced to him months ago in the early chapters of Luke's gospel. John was a forerunner. He was the final prophet from the Old Testament he was, the, he, he was the one that preceded the Christ. We learned several passages in the Old Testament where there was this one who was to make straight the paths, the one who was going to lead God's people to repentance and preparation for their king. And John did a smashing job, a wonderful ministry, very fruitful. Many people surrendered to the gospel through it. And Jesus poses this question to them, Was John from God, or was it just from John? And you might say, well, how does this have anything to do with verse 2's question that these leaders present? Because how you answer John, well, friend, gets you to how you answer Jesus. Usually, sadly, even as Baptists, we get our name from John the Baptist. We don't know much about John, do we? We don't spend much time thinking about him. But John had a a tremendous ministry. In fact, Jesus says of John, there's no one greater born of men than him. What a wonderful picture, a testimony of his faithfulness to follow God in the midst of tremendous headwinds. No one wanted to follow him, yet he kept preaching and teaching. And so, as the religious leaders begin to think of Jesus' question, they recognize the the predicament that they're in. They're motivated more by the fact of their own reputation than they are about the truth. And this we see in verse 5. They discussed it with one another saying, well, if we say from heaven, well, then he's going to say to us, why didn't you believe him? And that's natural. doesn't make sense. So if they come out and say, okay, the baptism of John, we believe that's from God. Then Then Jesus is going to respond, then why didn't you believe him? If he was from God, then you should have believed him. You're the stinking religious leaders after all. Then they considered the other side of the coin. Well, what if we say that it's it's from man? Which is what they believe, what they felt in their heart. They knew that this was just sort of a man-made religion. This sort of man-made, again, John was outside of all of the religious establishment. I mean, the guy wore, wore strange clothes and he like lived in the woods, right? Who's going to go follow him? And they begin to consider the question. Look, look here at verse 6. Notice the irony of verse 6. But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they, the people, are convinced that John was a prophet. He was a prophet. 
You see the irony? The religious leaders, the, the, the scribes, the experts on the Old Testament, of all the people who should have said, oh, there he is. There's the prophet. He, yes, that matches the prophecy exactly. There he is. Let's go. Let's follow him. It's the, the fishermen and the farmers, the housewives who get on him. They're the one that can see him, but they're blind. Friend, the whole point of this and why Jesus responds the way he does in verse 8 by saying, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, is because he knows that more truth isn't going to help their hard hearts. Brothers and sisters, listen. You can preach and preach and preach the truth, but until a heart is humbled, they will not hear the truth. Jesus says it this way at the beginning of his sermon that we know is the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not throw your pearls to pigs, lest they trample them. In other words, don't waste your time. Jesus knew that their hearts had been so calcified to the gospel, there was no hope for them. And so, in judgment, he withholds the truth. Well, this is what Jesus had taught his disciples years earlier. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 8. He said, to you, speaking to his disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. In other words, because of their hard hearts, God blinded their spiritual eyes so that they could not see and believe. Friend, this is a warning to each one of us this morning. That if we so harden our hearts to the truth, that is clearly perceived by all, that God in His goodness and in His judgment will harden our hearts in such a way so that we cannot repent and believe and trust in Him. Friend, hear the words from James chapter 4 that you heard earlier this morning. I began with this because it ties in so naturally with what the, the response to this is. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will exalt you. You see, it's only when we humble ourselves before the King that you and I come to saving knowledge. You see, the first step to knowledge is to confess that you have no knowledge. You say, that's sort of oxymoronic. Friend, this is a wonderful upside-down world of the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus does not save the proud. He does not save the noble. He does not save the people who have their life all together. You're about to hear story after story in just a moment through the waters of baptism of people whose lives were wrecked. Wrecked by who? By themselves, by their own sin and their hard-heartedness. But God in His infinite mercy and grace radically saved them and transformed their life. You see, friend, it is okay that you don't know everything. When we train evangelism, when we think about sharing the gospel, I tell our people all the time, listen, and you've heard me say this, it's okay to say, I don't know. Why? Because that kind of humility breeds knowledge. Humility is 
the fertile soil that allows you and I to come to a greater knowledge. So greater knowledge comes by way of greater humility. And friend, this morning, perhaps what prevents you from confessing Jesus as king is similar to these religious leaders. They were more concerned with their personal reputation and influence than they were about the truth. They were more happy to have their little kingdom and they were threatened when someone would dare come in and challenge their own authority. Perhaps this morning you're more concerned about what others think of you than what God thinks of you. More concerned about your own life than bowing your knee to King Jesus. And brothers and sisters, I believe their rejection serves as a warning to us. For you and I are tempted to reject Jesus at every turn. Brothers and sisters, we ought not think that we are immune to treating Jesus the way these religious folk did in his day. Bernard of Clairvaux writes this, O Lord, come quickly and reign on your throne, for now often sometimes rises within me and tries to take possession of your throne. What tries to take possession of our throne? Well, Bernard writes this, pride, covetousness, uncleanness, and sloth want to be my kings. And then, evil speaking, anger and hatred and the whole train of vices join with me in warning against myself and trying to reign over me. I resist them. I cry out against them and say, I have no other king than Christ. O King of peace, come and reign in me, for I will have no king but you. Friend, is that your prayer? That you would have no other king but Jesus? Those who've hardened their hearts towards Jesus cannot hear the truth about Him. The first step towards salvation is a humble heart, humility, that maybe I don't have it all figured out, that maybe I'm wrong about a few things in life. And we see, secondly, the second tragic consequence comes in verses 9 through 19. That hard hearts cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus clearly in response to these religious leaders goes on to tell this parable. Luke tells us as much in verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. And verse 19, the religious leaders know that he just told the parable about them. And this parable is a bit of an allegory. The vineyard is the people of God. Throughout the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, um, and throughout the prophets, Israel is regularly defined or referred to as a vineyard, and God as the, the, the vineyard owner. And so this morning as we read this, uh, we, we are to understand that God has a vineyard, has a people, and that God let it out to other tenants. This was a custom of the day where uh, an owner would let out to someone else. And as he sends his servants to go gather some of the fruit, we notice first that there is no fruit. And perhaps this is why the, the tenants are trying to get rid of the servants, because they have failed. Now we're to understand that the tenants are the religious leaders. 
So God is the, the one who owns the vineyard. The vineyard is the people that these religious leaders are supposed to be caring for and shepherding and ministering to and bearing fruit. And so he sends prophet, or excuse me, t- um, servant after servant to these. And, we, and we're told in the text that, that each of them were treated shamefully by these tenants. Now, there's nothing to read into the number three. The idea is of holistic. In other words, there wasn't just three prophets. You see, these, these prophets were regularly sent by God to the nation of Israel, and at every turn they said, get out of here, leave. We don't want to hear about God's Word. We don't need the Word. We, we have our own king. We have our own leaders, and we're listening to them You see, in the past, the Israelites had either abused or killed many of the prophets God had sent them. Isaiah was reportedly sawn in two. Jeremiah was locked in the stocks, put in prison, and dangled by his armpits in a cesspool. Micah was imprisoned and starved. Hanai was imprisoned and put in stocks. Zechariah was stoned in the temple courtyard, and Uriah was struck down by the king. God's people hated these servants. And we're told in the text that that the owner of the vineyard was long-suffering. Notice he sent three, and then finally sent, we're told in the text too, verse 13, his beloved son. Now, of course, we've just talked about John the Baptist, haven't we? So, So the hearers there that day, they're sitting there, they're, they're thinking, oh, remember back to John's baptism? Oh, I've heard about it. I've heard stories about, about it. And of course, John's baptism is connected to Jesus' baptism. He was baptized by John. And what happened that day when Jesus was baptized? There was a voice from heaven that spoke and said, this is my beloved son. This is him. Listen to him. And so Jesus, in telling this parable, would conjure up in the minds of God's people a reminder of the ministry of John and that he was the beloved son who had come. But of course, just like the servants before, what are we told there in verse 14? The tenants got together. Perhaps they thought that the owner was dead and that's why the son had arrived. But regardless, the, the, idea, the, the picture is, is complete, isn't it? They decide to kill the beloved son and notice, cast him out of the vineyard. A foreshadow of what is going to happen to Jesus in just a few days. Jesus will be drugged outside of the temple, outside of the territory of Israel, outside of the camp, and he'll be killed as an innocent man who had done nothing wrong because these religious leaders wanted to be king of their life. So imagine for a moment you go away, perhaps on vacation, and while you're away, you have a contractor come over and do some work for you. He seems legitimate at first and had a good reputation, good reviews, and so you let him have at it. You give him a key to the house, and he begins his work. Well, then you return home from your long vacation. You find the locks changed, 
and the big fella sitting in your chair eating your potato chips. You're banging on the door, let me in, let me in, this is my house. To which he responds, no, this is mine. After all, I have the key. This is what Jesus is illustrating. Someone's taken over his kingdom and he has no recourse but to go in and throw them out. Brothers and sisters, here is the reality that Jesus is speaking. Either he will be king by a willful knee or he will be king by force. The Bible promises us that Jesus will king be king. You cannot be king of your life. Either now or in eternity, Jesus will be king. Either you will live in relationship to this king, or you will be condemned by this king, but regardless. And Jesus makes this point emphatically clear through his quotation of Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What a wonderful picture that the, that the psalmist gives us. This stone, and the builders look at it. They're like, we don't want this stone. This stone's ugly. This is not the stone. This is, we want a different stone. Get this stone out of here. We want a better stone, a more glorious stone, a stone that looks like me, a stone that acts like me and thinks like me and does what I want to do. It becomes the cornerstone. In other words, it becomes the only way that you are saved. Did you hear Peter, 1 Peter 4, 11 and 12? Jesus, Peter uses this in his sermon to say that there is no other name given among men by which you may be saved except by the name of Jesus. Jesus is saying that he is the exclusive king. There are only one king in his kingdom. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus goes on there in verse 18 to make clear that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. If you reject Jesus, you reject the only means of salvation given to you. Friend, there are no second chances when King Jesus arrives. He is coming again. And it will not be the day of salvation. It will be the day of judgment. The day in which He will sit on His eternal throne and rule and reign over His people. And your fate will be the same. Men and women have stumbled over Jesus for two millennia. And they will continue to stumble over Jesus. And brothers and sisters, we ought not be surprised when this world keeps stumbling over Jesus. And they'll continue to stumble over Jesus until He comes. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. Friend, only those who humbly hear and believe that Jesus is King will inherit the Kingdom of God. Jesus gives them these tragic words. That he will come and he will deal with these wicked. And he will take and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And brothers and sisters, that happened in 70 A.D. 
We thought about it last week, and we'll think about it again just for a moment. The people of Israel rejected Jesus as king. Even today, the nation of Israel rejects Jesus as king. They don't get special blessings for rejecting Jesus, no more than we as individuals or as a sovereign nation get blessings for rejecting Jesus as king. The kingdom has been taken from them and given to Gentiles. This is not to say anything about a future uh, Jewish belief and a revival of sorts. We pray to that end. But it is a reminder of the stark warning and picture that Jesus has for those who reject Him. In this text, Jesus is quoting the prophet Daniel, and He compares the coming kingdom to a stone. He writes this, as you look, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image of his feet and iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff with the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that had struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The kingdom of God is coming with, up, with, with great power, with great wonder. And Jesus is the cornerstone that crushes all who do not put their trust in Him. But friends, there is deliverance for those who plead for mercy. Those who act for protection and plead, God, protect me from this stone. Let it not crush me. The religious leaders wanted nothing to do with this stone. But friend, this morning, you can be saved from this crushing stone if you will bow your knee and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we are overwhelmed by your mercy and grace. The long-suffering that was displayed here in this parable as you sent messenger after messenger after messenger. And yet again this morning, you sent another messenger to us. Your word has testified to the identity of King Jesus. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would bow our knee and worship Him as King. That we would stop living life our way and go God's new way through King Jesus. Father, may you be glorified in Christ, we pray. Amen.